On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Mark Cortez about Christological anthropology and theological anthropology. So what's the distinction between the two? What's the method behind Christological anthropology? And then we ask some more practical questions, so more systematic theology type things. What is the image of God? Uh, What's most interesting and surprising or challenging about theological anthropology? Um, And what's this thing called the incarnation anyway? Should we affirm that, deny that, and what does that even mean? And then we get into a couple case examples of those doing Christological anthropology in history. So we talk about Gregory of Nyssa and Martin Luther. I think it's a really fun conversation, really interesting. Dr. Cortez is a delight to talk with and is very, very knowledgeable and very fun to talk with. So I really know you're going to enjoy the episode. So before we get there, uh, those listeners, if you have questions about the show or or if you have uh, thoughts or ideas or guests you want to hear or topics you want us to talk about, uh, drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook, or you can email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. We look forward to talking to you guys. Here's the episode. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you guys to Dr. Mark Cortez. I think um, from reading his own work, he's one of the few academics that I really enjoy reading. Uh, just the way he writes, it's it seems lucid, generous, uh, as well as humorous at times. There are certain people that just have a knack for being able to actually be funny in academic writing. I think uh, him and Tim Paul are probably t- two of my favorites uh, to read when it comes to that. Um, and I've got several of his books actually with me, and I just finished one of them, Resourcing Theological Anthropology, uh, this week. And I really enjoyed it. I think he touches a lot of really interesting topics. Uh, so I think that's a fun book, and I want to recommend that to you guys as well as his others. I know me and a fellow church member a few years ago read his, what is it? Theological Anthropology, A Guide for, for the Perplexed. Uh, he really benefited from it, and you know he has no theological training uh, and really enjoyed it. So Obviously, I recommend those. Knowing that, I'm really looking forward to talking to him on the show today, uh, talking about Christological anthropology. Uh, So, Dr. Cortez, I'll let you introduce yourself to our listeners who may not be familiar with who you are. Give us a little bit of background about yourself. Sure, Jordan. Well, thank you very much for that. And I'm glad you've enjoyed reading the books uh, and didn't find the humor too (laughs) stilted or idiosyncratic. yeah, so uh, I mean, I teach at Wheaton College. Um, I'm in my seventh year here, I think. Uh, so I'm a transplant to the Midwest. Uh, originally, when people ask me where I'm from originally, I used to just say that I'm from the Pac-10 because uh, <laughs> I grew up in all of the states that have Pac-10 uh, college football programs. Uh, now that it's the Pac-12, that doesn't work quite as well. But uh, my family moved a lot, so I've lived anywhere from uh, Washington, um, up in the Seattle area, all the way down to Los Angeles and multiple stops in between. Uh, Probably lived in the Portland, Vancouver, Washington area more than anywhere. Uh, That's where I went to high school. I did my undergraduate education at Multnomah University, which is there in Portland. Uh, Moved away for a couple of years and then came back and attended Western Seminary, uh, also in Portland. Through most of that, I was doing youth ministry. That was my first career, uh, and that comes out in places, I think, in various books that I've written uh, and went into youth ministry pretty convinced. I thought that I had been called to full-time lifetime youth ministry and was planning on doing that for as long as God would have me in ministry. 
um, as I was wrapping up my 10th year at uh, the church that I had been doing youth ministry in, my wife and I were pretty convinced that it was time for our ministry at that church to come to an end. Uh, went to seminary, which had always been my plan, thinking that I was going to get more training to continue on in youth ministry and kind of got stuck in the classroom. Uh, fell in love with the vision of training people to, to go on to do ministry um, and also realized that I could continue to do youth ministry without getting paid for it. So I've continued in a volunteer capacity with youth ministry uh, ever since. Um, then as I finished up at Western, I went to uh, University of St. Andrews to do my PhD there with Alan Torrance. Had a fabulous couple of years in Scotland. Uh, got to go right back to Portland and take up a teaching position at Western Seminary and taught there full time and then was the academic dean there for a number of years before we made the shift to Wheaton. Um, and I say we because I am married. I have two daughters. One is now a freshman at uh, Wheaton College. So I get to have a daughter at school with me, which is fun. And then my younger daughter is in eighth grade going into high school this year. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you for that introduction. And thanks again for uh, for joining us today. We want to chat with you about Christological anthropology. And I know some of our listeners are going to be familiar with that terminology. Others are, this is going to be the first time they've ever heard it. So um, maybe can we just start with um, a basic definition of, of what is Christological anthropology? Yeah, so that one's a little bit tricky because you get, a, like a lot of things, you get a range of different ways of uh, thinking about it or talking about it. it kind of the, the nutshell version of it is that uh, really any anthropology is Christological in the sense that it seeks to derive some understanding of what it means to be human on the basis of the personal work of Jesus Christ. Uh, which means in that kind of broad sense of the term, virtually all Christian anthropologies are Christological anthropologies because it's very difficult to find theologians who don't think that uh, Jesus should inform our understanding of what it means to be human in some sense of the word. Uh, <clears throat> what I was really after, and this goes back to my dissertation, my doctoral work, uh, was trying to figure out... Um, if we could dig a little bit more deeply into what it means to say that Jesus informs our understanding of what it means to be human. Um, I kind of got interested in this to begin with in that it's actually fairly common in books on theological anthropology to read statements toward the beginning that are Christological, that Jesus is going to inform our vision of humanity in some way. And then I would feel like I would read much of the rest of the book without hearing a lot about Jesus. Uh, and so what I was after was, are there more robust versions of a Christological anthropology? Uh, and so in my book, Christological Anthropology and Historical Perspective, I tried to tease out a few different levels that kind of very generic definition that I just gave you all the way through uh, somebody like Karl Barth, who's going to argue that um, Christology should be the theological starting point for everything we want to say about the human person which is much more robust than just saying that Jesus reveals some things about what it means to be human. He's going to say Christology is the central starting point for every theological uh, reflection on the nature of humanity. And then there's a range of options in between those two. So when it comes to Christological anthropology, I was reading your book, Resourcing Theological Anthropology, and I, in, I think it's the introduction. You talk about what exactly it is. And it had me thinking um, do we need the incarnation to fully understand humanity? And you, you deal with these, these issues, obviously, you know, there's Genesis one, Genesis two and creation and how we can understand humanity from that vantage point, but you can't understand humanity apart from Christology. 
and I think you deal with it somewhat towards the end as well, as you can understand some things. So the claim is when it comes to Christological anthropology that you just, you can't know everything that there is to know about humanity. You can know some stuff, but not everything. Is that a correct representation? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it's the word fully in your question that I would want to kind of camp out on. Um, and we'll probably get into this in some of the, the little bit uh, later issues, because uh, in your question, you asked about, do you need the incarnation to understand humanity fully? Um, and that kind of raises into some kind of incarnation anyway questions. Uh, so if we hadn't fallen into sin, would it be the case that Jesus hadn't become incarnate? Does that mean that we wouldn't be able to understand what it means to be human? Uh, so you can have um, like what I would still consider to be a pretty robustly Christological anthropology that wants to root knowledge of humanity in the eternal identity of the divine son, where that's kind of the Christological emphasis. And you'll find that in a number of theologians. Uh, we'll probably get into this. I push in a different direction where I do see the incarnation itself is central to understanding humanity. Yeah. Um, and then on the fully bit, yeah, I would say that uh, I think it would be actually kind of silly to think that we can understand absolutely everything that we need to know about what it means to be human through the incarnation. Uh, I, I know people who are like molecular biologists who would find that kind of a claim to be a little odd, if nothing else. Um, but if we're going to say that it's central, then we're going to say that it will um, have fundamental significance for everything that we want to, that we know about what it means to be human. If I'm understanding everything correctly, it seems like Christological anthropology would maybe be a subset of theological anthropology. Is that correct? Yeah. So in I think in the introduction that Jordan just mentioned there, uh, I did talk about like you actually can have a theological anthropology and not even be Christian. Right. Mm -hmm. If we just define theological anthropology is um, developing an understanding of what it means to be human in light of who God is, uh, then you could be certainly Jewish and have a theological right. anthropology and lots of other perspectives. Um, <clears throat> and so I would see Christological anthropology is a specific type of theological anthropology. And then even in the rubric Christological anthropology, going back to that range issue that we talked about before, you can have different kind of subtypes of a Christological anthropology. Hmm. So in, with, with that in mind, um, we'll, we'll set aside the Christological piece just for a second, and we'll get back to that in a second more in depth. But as far as theological anthropology and your studies, what do, you, what do you think has been one of the most confusing or maybe more challenging areas um, when it comes to theological anthropology in general? Um, well, pretty much all of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, Are there areas that are particularly controversial, like maybe historically? Oh, historically. Okay. Um, I mean, I was going to say, one of the things that I often tell my students that I find challenging, but really fun about theological anthropology is the fact that almost all of the issues that you get into are contentious, debated, uh, fraught kinds of questions that need to be handled really carefully. Um, <clears throat> uh, historically, of course, you've got the whole debate about the image of God um, and how we understand that. Um, and then issues surrounding the body and sexuality have... Uh, been key to the uh, the tradition's understanding of what it means to be human. That the free will debate has been with us for a long time. Um, I would say those are probably some of the more prominent. I know we, we want to discuss the issues surrounding the image of God. Jordan, do you want to go ahead and maybe we can we can tackle that here and then do the the case studies afterwards? Sure. Yeah. So when it comes to the image of God, I know I think you've got a particular view on it. So maybe 
I guess, lay a little bit of the ground of like, here are the typical options. You don't have to go super in depth into them, but just to kind of set the stage for maybe some of our listeners, some of our listeners are really well versed in this and some aren't. So Mm -hmm. a couple of the options and then where, what is your view and where does it fit in that scheme of options? Sure. Um, pretty common uh, for people to talk about the kind of options for interpreting, interpreting the image of God in four broad categories. Uh, I talk about this a bit in my Theological Anthropology Guide for the Perplexed book, uh, where historically by far the most influential has been the idea that there is something kind of rooted in human nature, uh, some capacity or um, um, attribute that we have. Uh, and typically the logic is it's something about us that makes us like God and not like the rest of creation. Uh, so it's that, uh, we, we are, um, uh, it's that which makes us images of God. So like him in some way, but given that only human persons are said to be images of God in Genesis one, it should then be something that differentiates us from the rest of creation. Uh, lots of options on the table here. You could go with free will or morality or creativity or speech or whatnot, rationality being by far the most common of those. Uh, so God created us to know him and it's in that intellective capacity that fundamentally the image of God is rooted. Um, More recently, you have a lot of people arguing, particularly on the Old Testament scholarship side, that the image of God isn't something rooted in our nature. It's something rooted in our uh, our calling, our vocation. It's a task that we've been given. Uh, Pretty common for people to look right in Genesis 1 itself and note that right after the text says that we are created in his image according to our likeness, it says, and let them rule. Uh, and so oftentimes they'll take that as a definition of the image to be in an image is to be God's representative rulers in creation. Lots of ancient Near Eastern data to support that that concept was, was around in the prevailing world. Uh, so if you've got kind of a, a, a substantival or structural view with rationality, you've got a functional view with rulership. Uh, and then theologically, particularly from the early to mid 20th century on, you have a strong emphasis on relationality as a definition of the image. So just as God is triune in himself, he created us as relational beings. Uh, and there they typically mean both vertical and horizontal relationality, uh, that we image God and not just through the divine human relationality. If that's all that we meant, uh, that view has been around from the very beginning because it's intrinsic to all of the other views uh, that all of them say that to image God is to stand in some kind of a relationship with the creator. Uh, what What is kind of, um, particularly to that 20th century turn, is a much stronger emphasis on horizontal human-human relationality, uh, and particularly an emphasis on the male-female relationship as being fundamental uh, to that kind of relationality. Not unique. Um, there aren't many theologians have argued that the male-female relationship just is the definition of the image, but they'll argue that it's kind of the fundamental expression of human relationality. Uh, Then the fourth one is to kind of go with the all of the above approach uh, and develop some type of a a multifaceted view of the image that seeks to um, utilize various aspects of the different views. Uh, If I'm going to try to position my view in there, um, that's a little bit tricky. Uh, So Rather than positioning it first, let me just kind of quickly say what it is. Um, uh, I've described it as the divine presence view in a variety of places. Uh, and I'm still developing, actually, the book project that I'm working on right now is trying to unpack this and, and explain it a little bit further. But really all I'm doing, I think, is I'm picking up on the fact that actually if you look at what Old Testament scholarship says about the image, uh, 
Most Old Testament scholars will very quickly say that the starting point for thinking about the image language in Genesis 1 is the ancient Near Eastern concept of the idol. Uh, and they'll just say that the, the terms Selim and Demut in Genesis 1 would most naturally have been heard in that context as idol terms. That's how the terms are often used elsewhere in the biblical text, and it's how um, related terms are used in surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures. Um, and what I mean by idol terms are just the fact that um, in uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and various cognate languages, they used a variety of terms to talk about the fact that you can have some material object, uh, particularly a statue of some kind, that would be viewed as the physical means through which some divine being would manifest presence in creation. Uh, so that, that that physical object becomes the locus of the presence of that divine being. Um, and if that's what an idol is, and if Selim and Demut from Genesis 1 uh, would typically have been heard as idol terms or terms referring, kind of drawing on that conceptual framework, then the, the idea then is that uh, the natural way to read Genesis 1.26 is that the text is comparing us in some way to ancient Near Eastern idols, um, and thus that we are the physical means by which God seeks to make himself present in creation. Uh, and so then when you get to the language of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the, the vision is that, that we would actually be the bearers of divine presence with us, seeking to fill the earth with God's presence. Uh, so to kind of locate that among the other views, uh, it's a little bit tricky. Um, it's definitely not a substantival or structural view of the image because it's not something that's intrinsic to us um, as though somehow I am a human and am capable of making God or forcing God to be present. That's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's also, therefore, not really a functional view, at least not as traditionally understood, because, again, I don't make God present in virtue of anything that I do. Um, if anything, it's kind of a functional view in that it's a function of something that God does. God's the one who makes himself present in and through us. Uh, it's clearly a relational view of a kind because it creates a very intimate relationship between the human and the divine. But I've already said that's not terribly unique to this particular view. Um, so I tend to describe it at times as a really weird form of a functional view, um, but only when I've had time to explain myself because I have my own reasons for not liking the functional view. And so I tend not to want to apply that label to this particular way of talking about the image. Yeah. Having just read it, I thought it was super interesting. Um, and I was it, it immediately made me think of a lot of different biblical theologians who've talked about how, mm -hmm. you know, Adam and Eve were like priests in the garden and their purpose was to expand the presence of God and to make it almost like a giant temple. And it seemed like that fit really well with that type of thought. And one thing I was wondering was, is that, are there others in like history who've had something similar to this view or, or is this something more that you've kind of developed yourself? Well, in the history of theology, uh, you don't find a lot of people leaning heavily on the idol language or framework for thinking about the image. Uh, the idea that it's related to God's presence, that's not terribly unusual. Uh, and so I am trying to uh, connect some historical perspectives on divine presence as it relates to the image and then bring that into conversation with some of this more recent research on idol uh, conceptions as the right background for this. 
Um, if I do fast forward a bit into more the modern context, um, I'm definitely not um, kind of developing any of this material as far as the idol framework myself. Uh, this has been prevalent in Old Testament studies for quite some time now. Uh, and I've actually described this project in a variety of ways of uh, seeking to introduce theologians to the Old Testament scholarship um, and then do some theological work with it. Because one of the things that uh, I find a little bit lacking in many of the Old Testament studies, and, and largely because it's not what they're there for, is that this framework does raise some really interesting theological questions about what divine presence is and exactly how is God present in and through humans in a way that he's not present in and through other things. And what happens to that divine presence after the fall? And how do you think about the difference between God's presence and Christians and non-Christians? And I find those really interesting and important questions that don't get wrestled with in the Old Testament scholarship. But when I look at the theological literature on the image, I don't see them talking about the idol framework and divine presence as central to the understanding of the image. So I'm really trying to bring two conversations together and then see if we can create a little bit more clarity in the conversation as a result. Another topic that I wanted to touch on um, in your book, you talk about the incarnation anyway, I guess, theological position. And mm -hmm. to be honest with you, before I had read, I think it was Oliver Crisp, uh, the word in flesh, I think it was, he talks about it. I was not super familiar with this idea at all. I had, it was really somewhat shocking to me to think about it. I was like, I don't know why I've never thought about this. Um, and it made a lot of sense. Um, I wasn't overly convinced then I read yours and I'm much more, I guess, open to it and willing to hear it out and think positively about it. So maybe you can explain a little bit, just what is this argument and why would someone affirm it or deny it? Yeah. Well, the, the nutshell of what is the argument uh, really is, would you have had an incarnation even if we hadn't fallen into sin? Uh, and for the purposes of my project, it goes back to what I said a little bit earlier in the interview of the uh, specific role of the incarnate Christ in a Christological anthropology. Uh, and it is pretty central to the argument that I've developed in the resourcing book that um, uh, as important as I, I don't want to downplay the importance of the eternal identity of the divine son, but it is the incarnate uh, son in his embodied self that I think is the true image of God and therefore the center of theological anthropology. Uh, well, if that's the case, then you, you do have to ask the incarnation anyway question, uh, because it would be rather odd for that to be true. And then to envision a scenario where we don't fall into sin and the son never becomes incarnate if the incarnate son just is the definition of what it means to be human. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the, the viewpoint in there. Now I will admit when I went into the project, the resourcing project in particular, which was my attempt to put together some theological issues that I hadn't wrestled through myself in thinking about a Christological anthropology. Um, and there were two chapters in the book in particular where I landed in a place different than I had anticipated going into writing the book. And this was one of the chapters. Uh, and largely because my theological background um, has a tendency to be pretty nervous about a certain kind of theological speculation in your method for doing theology and viewing it as a bit inappropriate to draw or base theological arguments on speculative moves about what God might have done or what would have happened if it had gone this way. And um, 
So I had pretty much assumed that I was uh, going to get into this chapter and argue either against the incarnation anyway position, or at least argue that it was not um, uh, central to the account that I was going to make. You could kind of land either way. And I do a little bit of that in chapter because I do think, again, you can have a Christological anthropology that goes in a different direction than where I took this particular issue. But I did realize as I was developing the chapter, um, not only that it was central for my particular way of thinking about how Christology and anthropology were working, uh, but I actually convinced myself that the speculation worry um, might not be as big a deal as I thought it was. And I actually kind of convinced myself that the worry is misplaced, uh, right? If the worry is uh, speculative moves about what might have been or what might not have been, uh, then, then actually to argue that the incarnation is central to what God is doing and his purposes with humanity, um, uh, it's actually more speculative to try to imagine a scenario in which God would carry out his purposes for humanity without the incarnation than to assume that the incarnation would always be central to God's purposes and plans, because that's how, in fact, how he has gone about doing things. Um, so I just kind of, I was able to let myself back off a little bit, the speculation worries, uh, explore the issue as it, as it is. And, um, yeah, convince myself that it might not be the, uh, the thing that I think you absolutely must affirm, but it made more sense to me by the end of my chapter. So I'm, I'm glad it worked that way for you at least a little bit. Yeah, I think your argument from 1 Corinthians 15, I think it was, was what was mm -hmm. most persuasive and really interesting to me. Are there are there any figures in church history who, who have promoted this incarnation anyway uh, viewpoint? I, I, I don't know that much about Bart, but it seems like this might be something that he would maybe promote just knowing what I know about Bart. Are there, are there any theologians that we may be familiar with who have promoted this? This depends a little bit on who you ask. Uh, so there is a debate in the incarnation anyway literature on how common this was before, let's say the um, probably late 1800s or so. It has definitely become more common in modern theology. And um, you'll find an increasing number of people intrigued by this kind of an argument. Uh, there are some who have argued that if you go back to the patristic period, uh, especially in the Greek speaking church, that this was the just the normal way of thinking, that the incarnation was just central no matter what. Uh, and they tended not to engage it uh, speculatively through the language of what might have happened if God had done things differently or whatnot. It was just assumed that the incarnation was central to God's plans and purposes and then shaped really everything they, they wanted to say. Um, so that lots of people will point out that in the patristic period, uh, it's interesting the ease with which they move back and forth between claims about the eternal son and claims about the incarnate Christ um, as um, uh, as though they're just not terribly troubled about a need to distinguish carefully between those kinds of things. Um, so there is a strand in the incarnation anyway argument saying, hey, this has been around for a long time. This is actually the default assumption from the very beginning. Uh, it does drop away a bit when you move into the, uh, the, the medieval period. Um, it's often associated with somebody like Scotus uh, and um, then kind of rises again to prominence with modern theology. Uh, there's a different strand of scholarship in the Incarnation Anyway move who just finds that historical argument unconvincing. Um, and it, uh, we do have to acknowledge that in the patristic period, it's a, a little bit of a tough argument to make, again, because they're not making the explicit kinds of what would have happened if arguments. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> and that's the kind of framework that you need to be pretty confident that somebody's actually operating in incarnation anyway categories. Uh, and so it's entirely possible that many people in the early church were just saying incarnation anyway kinds of things, mm -hmm. but not necessarily making the same theological assumptions. Um, and if that's the case, then it is relatively sparse um, until you get to, um, again, you get a SCOTUS and then you can kind of go with Schleiermacher and move forward. Um, <clears throat> cool. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, or maybe a couple, is you've got your book, Christological Anthropology and Historical Perspective. Mm -hmm. And there's a ton of really interesting chapters in here. Um, one of them that I found really interesting was the very opening chapter on Gregory of Nyssa's Transformative Christology and the Reorientation of Sexuality. So I think his view is fascinating. And I'm curious, could you, like, I guess, unpack what Nissa's doing, what he's saying, and how that relates to Christological anthropology, maybe? Sure. Well, just to give you a little bit of uh, backstory on the relationship between the two books. Uh, so the Christological Anthropology and Historical Perspective was first, mm -hmm. um, and uh, Resourcing came second. Both of them are with Zondervan, and the, the, they were envisioned as a, uh, a two-book kind of package from the very beginning. And the way I've described it before was resourcing was the book that I wanted to write. That was kind of my end goal from the, from the, the beginning was to put together a constructive theological argument regarding Christological anthropology. Uh, but I felt like I needed to do a fair bit of work on the historical side to get a feel for how have people done this previously before I sought to make any constructive moves on my own. That's just kind of how I'm wired as a theologian to want to be able to do that. Um, and so really, Christological anthropology is the homework that I needed to do to write resourcing. <laughs> and Donovan let me do both of them as a book, his books. So, you know, that's a bonus yep, on my end. Um, so it, Christological anthropology, you mentioned the kind of the case study approach. It really is just a set of case studies in Christological anthropology of trying to figure out um, when I saw an instance of a theologian who seemed to draw Christology and anthropology in a really tight relationship, mm -hmm. what exactly were they doing? Why were they doing that? And what kinds of conclusions were they drawing? Um, Gregory of Nyssa, his role in the book is to give us an example of somebody who um, thinks about the relationship between Christology and anthropology with a strong emphasis on the resurrection and eschatology. Uh, and so I, when I talk about Gregory giving us a very transformative notion of uh, humanity, um, it is because of how he thinks about Jesus taking our, our humanity to himself, true humanity, but then transforming it and, and el elevating it in a pretty robust way. Uh, <clears throat> so that when we think about uh, kind of what is the picture of true humanity that we get from Gregory, it actually isn't the kind of Christological anthropology that does a lot of uh, argumentation on the basis of, say, the Gospels, uh, where we're looking at like the historic narratives of Christ's lived existence. Uh, he does spend a lot more time thinking about the transformative significance of the incarnation and atonement and ascension um, and... Uh, leaves us with what I described in the chapter as more of an apophatic anthropology in the sense that we can be confident that, that Jesus is revealing to us what it means to be human, but it reveals it to us more in a trajectory sense 
that we see in Jesus that he has oriented our humanity toward this kind of eschatological telos. Um, but we don't see the end of that trajectory. Uh, you know, we, we don't know where this is all going. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so even uh, like Gregory's very clear that he affirms the resurrection and that it's an embodied resurrection. It's just not a spiritual resurrection. But I'll admit, I find myself puzzled at times trying to figure out exactly what Gregory means by a body, because the body itself is so dynamically transformed in this uh, process and um, that I'm like, OK, great, I've got one. I'm just not super sure I know what it is. <laughs> So, oh, so the, the other part of that then is I did connect all of that then to implications for, for what Gregory says about sexuality. And mm -hmm. it specifically has to do with this notion of the body. Um, and Gregory's pretty convinced that our sexuality cannot be intrinsic to um, our humanity in a fundamentally you know, essential sort of way. Uh, and it's rooted at least partly, um, well, lots of Oh, I should pause here for a second before I go too far into this and point out for anyone who's listening to this, I'm a theologian, not a historian. Uh, so uh, what I, these case studies for me were opportunities for me to learn from a bunch of theologians who've, who've gone before me and be mentored by them as I'm doing my theological work. Uh, and I try to be careful not to present myself as a historical expert on any one of the figures, let alone all of the figures that I cover in this particular book. Uh, so with that caveat in place, um, Gregory is um, convinced that our, our maleness and femaleness can't be essential to being human, partly because uh, he has a pretty strong emphasis on um, the unity of the human race, uh, that it's, it's our intimate unities in diversity uh, that is fundamental to being human. He gets that uh, partly because of how he thinks the Trinity relates to what it means to be human. Um, and so insofar as we are imaging God, that intimate unity that we see in the Godhead should characterize what's going on in, in humanity. Um, and then the in Christ material from the New Testament and the incorporation into one body has an emphasizing unity. So Gregory's pretty convinced that anything that divides us as human persons needs to get overcome in the resurrection as we are brought together in ever more intimate unity in Christ through the power of the Spirit. Uh, and he does uh, tend to think about maleness and femaleness more as uh, something that holds us apart than brings us together. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Uh, the other bit of it, though, is how he talks about the image of God. Um, and if God himself is genderless, um, and yeah, Gregory largely just takes that as an assumed starting point, uh, that God transcends things like maleness and femaleness. And if we're made in the image of God, then maleness and femaleness cannot itself be intrinsic to the image of God. Uh, that maleness and femaleness is doing something else, um, and largely there for reproductive purposes, and we can talk about that in a moment, uh, but that the image of God itself is genderless. That's why he's not surprised when you get to the New Testament and some like Galatians 3.28, that there's neither male and female in Christ. Uh, Christ is the true image, so we shouldn't be surprised that there's no male and female in Christ because there's no male and female in the image. Uh, <clears throat> so if the image is central to being human, uh, fully realized and fully revealed in Christ, then eschatologically, we should be transcending these differences of maleness and femaleness um, moving forward. So his apathetic anthropology has us moving beyond, in a pretty robust sense, the categories of maleness and femaleness, but he's doing it for pretty explicitly Christological and image of God kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's it's just super interesting. And it, it seems like his argument would be very conducive to those who would want to be more, I guess, less traditional on questions of sexuality and gender. I don't know if that's, I, I haven't read a bunch of stuff, but it seems like he'd be a guy that if that's the way I wanted to go, I'd want to latch on to something like that. Would that be fair? Yeah, he definitely comes up in contemporary conversations by people who are interested in what patristic theologians think about this. Uh, they're actually, there's an ongoing interesting conversation uh, about Gregory, where, sorry, where Gregory and Augustine come up uh, because Augustine differs with Gregory on this. He does think that our maleness and femaleness yeah. is kind of intrinsic or human identity that remains in the eschaton. Uh, and so you have a number of theologians interested in issues of gender and sexuality who often bring those two into dialogue with each other and then wrestle with kind of who's got it right here. Um, and uh, you actually will have kind of um, uh, an interesting dynamic of who sides with Augustine and who sides with Gregory on this, because it doesn't necessarily fall in conservative, non-conservative lines. Uh, there, there are lots of people who think that Augustine's vision of embodied sexuality being intrinsic to human identity and enduring forever is a more robust affirmation of the body in all of its diverse forms. Uh, <clears throat> than Gregory with his uh, kind of apophatic transformation of gender and sexuality. Uh, so that the conversation doesn't always line up quite neatly, but people do find uh, what Gregory does with sexuality to be intriguing and worth engaging. Yeah. So the other one that I wanted to touch on, I mean, I'd really like to ask you about all of them, honestly, but the one that, uh, the other one that interested me the most, I think is Martin Luther's um, mm. understanding of vocation. Um, and justification. So maybe you can walk us through what is Luther saying here about justification and vocation? What does that look like and how does that relate to Christological anthropology? Yeah, so um, the probably the, the easiest starting point with Luther on this is to recognize that, and I guess I missed this for a long time theologically, but we always hear that Luther makes justification the center point of theology, mm -hmm. right? So it's the article on which Christianity stands or falls. Um, and I'd always heard that without actually thinking about how that relates to something like the doctrine of creation, right? How can the doctrine of creation stand or fall on the doctrine of justification if one comes significantly later in the storyline than the other? Uh, but even there, Luther's pretty clear. Uh, if you go and read his lectures on Genesis, uh, he roots grace at the very center of his understanding of the creative act um, in a really unapologetic way. It's just obvious to him that Genesis 1, to be understood rightly, um, has to be a story that's about grace that fundamentally relocates works to be uh, something that we do in response to grace rather than meriting grace. Um, even though I've read Genesis 1 a few times, and you don't find a lot of grace works justification <laughs> language in there. Uh, he just thinks that that's fundamental to thinking about what uh, what any doctrine means is you have to be thinking about it in those kinds of terms. Um, so for me, that makes, um, and then of course, well, let's just assume for Luther that justification itself is a thoroughly Christological category, then he has a, a, a Christological understanding of the doctrine of creation. Um, now I will say that I have gotten pushback on this and it's, it's fair from a perspective that um, might, that, be more adequately described as a soteriological understanding of creation rather than a Christological 
understanding of creation. Um, and I get the the critique there because it's not as built quite as robustly on, let's say, the incarnation as Gregory's understanding of anthropology. Um, I guess I'm just not as um, interested in uh, kind of pulling soteriology and Christology apart in ways that would make that dis distinction make sense to me. Um, but if you are inclined to think that a Christological anthropology and say a soteriological anthropology should be viewed as different things, then you are going to think that a couple of the case studies in the book lean more heavily on soteriology than they do on Christology, and the Luther chapter would be an example of that. Um, but then he's going to take that then right into his understanding of what it means to be human, um, that then fundamentally to be human uh, is to be the uh, kind of creature that is called to uh, relationship with God in grace, and then therefore called to respond in faith uh, to that. So uh, many people will define Luther's vision of what it means to be human using lots of faith language, um, to the extent that if you kind of push on it too hard, he begins to sound a bit like an existentialist, which is a, probably a little bit inappropriate for Luther. Uh, but it is because he does think the faith response is pretty critical to what it means to be human, because grace is at the center of what it means to be human. Um, but Luther then does do this really interesting thing in that when he thinks about how we respond as the definition of what it means to be uh, to be human, uh, he talks about the fact that we are creatures who stand not just before God, but before one another and even before the world. Um, and so the, um, the, the twofold response in justification is always a faith response that includes this vocation that we have, this calling uh, to live out our uh, faith response before one another and before the world. Um, and so that gets us directly into Luther's theology of vocation, uh, which is directly connected to his understanding of what it means to be an image bearer flowing out of a justification-centered understanding of really creation itself. Well, um, Dr. Cortez, before we let you go, I did want to, I like to ask for, for book recommendations at the end of every episode. So, um, do you have any, any books that you think would be beneficial either on Christological anthropology or maybe more broadly theological anthropology that you would like to recommend for our listeners, or maybe just your favorite authors to read on these, on any of these topics? Mm. Um, well, in theological anthropology, generally, I often tell people when they ask for recommendations in theological anthropology that it's a tough doctrine to give recommendations on for the topic as a whole. And that's because you actually don't have a ton of books that seek to cover theological anthropology as, a, as a, an entire doctrine. Um, what you tend to get are people who write really good books on subtopics within theological anthropology. So I actually find it much easier to make recommendations for books on the image of God or theology of race than I do on the doctrine itself um, mm -hmm. in its in its entirety. Uh, the kind of the, the go-to work right now, of course, is David Kelsey's two-volume uh, work, Eccentric Existence, uh, that came out with Westminster John Knox, I want to say in 2006, maybe. Um, and it is... Um, uh, a beast of a work. Uh, it, it's, it's detailed. Um, he does an interesting thing uh, following a little bit of the Bart mold uh, where, you know, Bart has the large print sections and the small print sections. Uh, I hate that that. do all that work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kelsey does that, but he does it with chapters. 
uh, he'll have one chapter that's doing more kind of the main argument of the book. And then I'll have a chapter that's like Bart small print section chapters that does more detail work in particular things. Um, and uh, he works in a pretty detailed way through a lot of issues in theological anthropology. Um, and um, probably for your uh, listeners, two things that he does in particular that might be worth keeping um, knowing about is one, he privileges the wisdom literature in thinking about a creational perspective on what it means to be human. He thinks we spent too much time talking about Genesis. Um, and uh, he thinks that if you're looking for Old Testament literature that is operating out of a largely creational perspective, you want the wisdom literature. <clears throat> um, then the second thing is he doesn't deal with the image of God in any great detail until the appendix. Uh, and he has an argument for why the image of God should not function as a central anthropological category like it has for systematics. Um, and obviously, I take a slightly different approach um, on the significance of the image. On that, He still does a fair bit of work with it, and he has a long, interesting discussion of it. Um, but it's notable that he deals with it in an appendix there. <clears throat> um, for people who, are, uh, who do Christological anthropology... Um, I mean, Bart was my entry point into the conversation. I, I, I found Bart in my doctoral program, or more rightly said, Alan Torrance um, introduced me to Bart and then strongly recommended that I read him. Because uh, I actually went to St. Andrews wanting to do my doctoral work, having landed on this Christology anthropology interchange as my focus, but I didn't have an interlocutor yet. And so when I got there, Alan um, pretty much rightly said, hey, if you're going to do anything on a Christological anthropology, you need to spend some time with Bart. And I really enjoyed it. His volume three, two of his dogmatics uh, is his uh, exercise in Christological anthropology. He spends the first chunk of it explaining why anthropology has to be Christological. And then the back half of it is his own kind of case study approach of applying uh, Christ, uh, Christological anthropology to particular things like the mind-body relationship or time um, or whatnot. Um, Tom Torrance has a very Christological anthropology. So does Colin Gunton uh, in different kinds of ways. Uh, so those are the kinds of theologians that I would suggest you interact with. Um, uh, Catherine Tanner uh, in her Christ the Key will unpack uh, a particular kind of Christological anthropology. It's different than some of the versions that I've been talking about so far, uh, but she has a, a robust way of thinking about the relationship between those dis disciplines as well as in Jesus, humanity, and the Trinity. So those would be places that would be worth looking at if you wanted to dig more. That's great. So for those who want to read more of your stuff or follow what you're doing, do you have a website or anything that they can follow you on? Um, I, I have to say I did. Um, the last couple of years have been unusually complicated for me. So uh, my website, which is just markcortez.com, has been down now for, I think, the better part of a year. And it's been on my to-do list for the better part of about half a year to get that up again. So at some point in time, that may in fact happen. Uh, but right now, it's not there. Okay. And is there anywhere? I am. Do you have, can like... try. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, people can track me down. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, and uh, those probably be the two easiest places to track me down online. I mean, I'm on academia and LinkedIn as well. But what that actually means varies <laughs> on what month we're talking about. So, yeah. Yeah, right. <clears throat> well, good stuff. So we want to say thank you for joining the show to talk with us about this. I think it's all really fascinating. Um, and you've been really helpful and generous and 
explaining it all. So uh, for those who are listening, uh, we want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we're the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists, to my knowledge. And we thank you for tuning in. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.